Many years ago, um, I was living in Cape Town, South Africa, after my undergraduate degree. And um, I uh, was, uh, had a, a family there that were really good friends of mine, and they had this little boy who was three years old. And there was one word I never heard this three-year-old utter in all the time I spent with his family. And that word was no. His parents never said the word no in front of their son. It was something they actively did. Um, so they would find other ways to say no, like not right now, or I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and their theory was, if he doesn't know the word, he can't use it. <laughs> I've never heard of this theory before or since, but, but there was something that they felt like a three-year-old doesn't know how to wield the word no properly. But of course, saying no, um, is uh, at the wrong time can, can get you in trouble. You know, I know so many adults who don't know how to say no. Um, yeah, often, uh, many people live with this expectation that they have to say yes, that they have to be people pleasers, and it can actually take a lifetime to really know how to use the word no properly. But it can get you in trouble, and it can cause to regrets. Like the time I said no, to sharing our table with a couple in a pub in a little English village. Uh, they were looking for somewhere to sit and my wife said, oh, let's invite them over. We have room at our table. And I said, no, I don't want to share my table. I was being boundaried. Um, uh, I was, eventually, I found out a few minutes later when they found another table to sit at that it was Patrick Stewart and his partner. <laughs> that was a bad no. Um, I would have loved to have chatted with Jean-Luc Picard or <laughs> Professor Charles Xavier. But um, today, we're going to be looking at someone in a new series that really wrestled and struggled with some dark emotions. Someone that struggled with what God was calling them to. In fact, he struggled so much that he said no to God. Today, we're beginning a new series on Jonah. And today I'll be uh, talking about chapter one. And in the following weeks, you'll get the other chapters um, with other speakers. But I'll begin today by reading to us quickly uh, Jonah one. I think I need to read the whole chapter uh, because it puts the story in context. So let's read Jonah one together. The word of the Lord says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. <laughs> the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do? to you to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Chona and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made a vow to him. 
Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know, in this famous story, we have a rebellious prophet, a supposed man of God who is angry with God for loving the people that he, Jonah, hated. And Jonah is unique as a book because as a book, it doesn't share the words of the prophet. It's not Jonah's prophecies. It's more like the backstory to Jonah's life. It shows us what a prophet was actually like. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what type of people God used as prophets. And in the case of Jonah, we have someone who was far from perfect. This was not a polished, pious, holy man. This was someone who was angry and very much imperfect. So there's hope for us too. Now off the bat, I should say, there will be people in this room that when they read the book of Jonah, they read it uh, literally. They believe that Jonah was a man swallowed by an actual fish and, um, and spat out a few days later. There are other people in this room that would see the story as figurative, no less meaningful, still teaching us truths about who God is and how he works, but not literal. And the point I want to make is simply this. Wherever you stand on the historicity of Jonah, uh, whether he was swallowed by a fish or not, we can all agree on what the book is telling us about God. And that is where we will focus our attentions for the next four weeks. Jonah now, uh, Jonah appears on, in one other occasion in scripture, and that is during the reign of Jeroboam II, infamously one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in Jeroboam's favor that Jeroboam would indeed win a battle and regain all the territory on Israel's northern border. That's in 2 Kings chapter 14. And then later on in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos reverses Jonah's prophecy by claiming that Jeroboam would lose all these gains because he was such a horrible king. So before we even get to the story of Jonah, our only knowledge of Jonah is that he's a prophet who blessed a terrible king and whose prophecies were later rescinded by the prophecies of Amos. So Jonah is kind of a questionable figure. Before we even get to this story, and there is a sense in which Jonah is coming from a place that says, Israel first, Israel before anyone else, which is certainly not in keeping with the heart of God, as he will find out. And the whole book of Jonah is written almost like a Shakespearean comedy. I'm really glad that as I read the scriptures to you, you laughed. Um, I think that's an appropriate response. The characters are not at all behaving how they should. For instance, here in chapter one, we have Jonah the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, who seemingly hates God so much that they'd literally do anything to avoid doing God's work. And then juxtaposed with this, we have these pagan sailors who are meant to be really immoral, and they're the ones who are humbly beseeching God, asking God to forgive them. So it's back to front, and it's kind of farcical in how it plays out. And I think it's an example of humor, uh, scripture using humor to deal with a difficult subject. I think we should chuckle to ourselves as we read this story. The godly man is godless, and the pagans are pious and humble seeking to do God's will. So I would read this as a satirical story where the exaggerated responses of the characters cause us to reflect on our own prejudices and responses to God's calling, especially when that involves wrestling with the nature of God and his outrageous grace and mercy. So at the outset of the book of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, you'll see it on a map. The Assyrians were the sworn enemies of Israel, and make no mistake, the Assyrians were brutal. They were akin to the Romans when Jesus came, or the British Empire that came after that. Just a brutal regime that would stop at nothing to grow and take over and dominate. So he had good reason to fear the Assyrians or to not like the Assyrians. So Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, but instead of heading east to Nineveh, as God had instructed, Jonah goes west, and he goes so far west until he gets down to the coast to Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel. And at that point, he gets on a ship destined for an even more westerly destination, which is Tarshish, which most scholars would say was in southern Spain. Now, southern Spain was literally the ends of the earth in the ancient world. It was the furthermost part. It literally was thought the world ends there. There's nothing beyond uh, Europe, or Western Europe. 
So he's literally gone as far away as he could go from Nineveh. It is the furthest reaches of the known world. He's going out of his way, spending his own money, using his own energy to go as far away as possible from the very place that God had called him to go to. This is how much the idea of helping the Assyrians affected Jonah. The very thought that he would go and offer mercy and hope and good news to his sworn enemies was absolutely unthinkable to him. And on some level, to be honest, it was probably a really traumatizing thought for him to go and help those people. You know, a number of years ago, um, my wife and I, uh, before we had children, we were on a tour of an English castle called Leeds Castle, which is not in Leeds. I, I don't know why. It's in Kent, which is nowhere near Leeds, but it's called Leeds Castle. And um, uh, we were gathered there about to have a tour, and the tour guide asked where everyone was from. And most people were from different parts of England. There are a few people from France, and then there were two people from Brazil. And the tour guide said, that, very good, just be thankful that you Brazilians aren't from Argentina, because otherwise I'd refuse to take you on the tour. Uh, most people laughed nervously, and, and then someone asked why he made that joke. Was it because of Maradona's blatant handball against England in the 1986 World Cup? Not that I'm bitter about it. But no, no. Uh, this guy responded and said, no. It's because I was on a ship that was fired upon by an Argentinian fighter jet. And I watched a number of my friends die in the Atlantic Ocean during the Malvinas War. He said, I refuse to take anyone from Argentina on this tour. I wasn't joking. Someone else can take them, but I will not. There was hushed silence as we were all confronted with hatred, and racism, born out of immense pain and trauma, and a total lack of forgiveness. And I, I don't say that with any judgment. I kind of felt sorry for the guy. He was trapped in this very real traumatic event, but as a result, he was coping by harboring unforgiveness and hatred. This is possibly how Jonah would have felt about the Assyrians. He would say, I will serve God as long as God doesn't call me to serve the Assyrians. Someone else can do that. And so Jonah, having run down from Joppa, he boards this ship full of pagan sailors, not a godly one among them, as far as we're concerned. And then he falls asleep. So God sends a storm to awaken Jonah. And of course, the sailors, who are arguably more godly than Jonah, discern by a roll of their dice that it's Jonah who has the answers for why this big storm is happening. And when they confront Jonah, he confesses that he is a prophet and that he's running away from God, the God who tells the seas what to do, the God who made the seas and the earth, the God who holds existence itself in his hands. Jonah is running away from him. I mean, it's hysterical. When he confesses this, he's trying to run away from the God who created, sustains, and knows everything. I remember when Evie, my daughter, was little, and I remember Evie um, hiding from me once in a game of hide-and-seek. She took a cushion and put it in front of her face. <laughs> I could see her legs. I could see her hands holding it. I could hear her chuckling and giggling as she thought I found the perfect hiding place. He'll never find me. It was a hysterical sight. And of course, the point is, for a small child who can't reach handles and doesn't yet know that to conceal oneself requires the whole body to be hidden, not just their field of view, it's laughable to think that she could hide from me when I know all the places to look. Jonah is the equivalent to a toddler hiding behind their hands from their parent while saying, you can't see me. It's utterly hysterical. Jonah is trying to run away from the God who made everything, and Jonah knows it. And when the sailors ask Jonah what on earth they should do, Jonah says, throw me overboard. Let me die. Jonah would rather die than do what God had called him to do. He's not doing it to be selfless. He's not doing it out of selfless compassion for the sailors. He's doing it because he thinks, if I die, then I don't have to do what God wants me to do. And of course, because these pagan sailors are so godly, they're reluctant to kill someone in case they invoke God's wrath. But eventually they're left with no choice but to throw Jonah to his doom over the side of the boat and they repent as they do so. Because of this event, they turn to God and actually end up following God. So what Jonah meant for bad, God used for good. And so Jonah's story is one of running away and going to some very dark places. And in this picture of fleeing God, we have this image of Jonah sinking to the depths of the ocean in an attempt to evade God and his call. 
And then God sovereignly moves and takes Jonah to even deeper and darker depths in the belly of a fish. What a story. More to come in the following weeks. But I think this opening chapter begs some questions for each of us. Firstly, what is God calling you to? Are we ready to hear that still small voice calling us to follow Christ once more? And maybe to follow him to some uncomfortable places. That could be a destination, but I'm thinking more like a posture, an attitude, a disposition, something in our hearts. Secondly, where are we tempted to run away from God? All of us have weaknesses or areas of struggle. We all have areas where it's easy to run and hide from God. I remember as a child when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, I used to have this thought that if God would heal me, then I would serve him in other countries. But if he didn't, I'd have to stay in England where I could get the care that I needed. In my childish mind, I put a barrier up to how God could use me. And as I grew, I had a growing sense that God maybe wanted me to be willing to move away from England and visit some places and serve him in some other areas of the world. And so as a 21-year-old, I moved to South Africa to do some voluntary work, which may not seem like a big deal to you. But for me, having told myself this narrative from a young age, it was really, really scary. But I had to do it. I had to face up to what I believed God was calling me to do, even when a big part of me didn't want to do it. But there are lots of ways we can run from God. We can run from God in our emotional life, holding back and not opening up to others. We can run from God in our friendships, in our generosity, in our service, in our boundaries, in saying no. We can run and hide from God in so many ways. We can literally run away in all areas of life because God wants all of us, not just parts of us, not segmented parts. God doesn't just want our Sunday mornings. God doesn't just want a tenth of our wealth. God doesn't just want basic morality. He doesn't just want people to not cuss and to be nice to their grandmas. God wants everything. He wants worship expressed in all of our lives, which doesn't mean we have to look and act like Ned Flanders or another constructed pious figure. He wants you to be uniquely you, which means occasionally laughing at inappropriate jokes. God's okay with this. He wants you to be you in all your perceived imperfections as well. In fact, I think Ken has just written a book about that. So secondly, where are we tempted to run away from God? Thirdly, how have we truly wrestled with the depths of God's grace? Have we wrestled with it enough to realize who and what it covers? You know, God's grace covers us and our enemies. I often say that to my children when they're bickering. You realize God wants you to love your enemies as well. Like we're in real trouble if you can't love each other well. He wants, um, his grace covers us, our enemies, all the things we feel, all the things we think and speak, all of the darkest, most difficult emotions and parts of our lives that we'd rather keep hidden. They're included in God's redemptive story. Jonah struggled to forgive the Assyrians and the trouble is that Jonah's heart didn't reflect the heart of God. A heart that has turned to all of his children. A heart that, that wants to have a relationship with everyone. Maybe you're struggling to forgive someone today. Or a people. Or maybe you're struggling to forgive yourself. Jonah's story reminds us of the depths of God's grace. You see, Jonah deliberately moved away from God again and again and again. He's caught in this downward descent, down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the sea, down into the belly of a fish, deeper and deeper, down and down. He just keeps going. And yet at each turn, God meets Jonah with mercy. God speaks to him. God speaks through pagan sailors. God provides a fish, offering Jonah a way out of the darkness and resurrecting him to his calling after three days. But more to come on that in the next few weeks. But this is how deep God's grace goes. You can't outrun it, nor can you hide from it. Bishop Barron, a Catholic bishop, speaks on the power of the cross. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, the sun went all the way down into everything that bedevils us. He went all the way down into the negativity of our human experience. The father sends the son all the way down so as to embrace in principle everybody 
All those who have wandered far from God. And then in the resurrection, the Father calls the Son back through the power of the Holy Spirit, thereby in principle again, calling all of us back. As we run away from the Father, we are running into the arms of the Son. There is no place, finally, where we can escape the invitation of the divine mercy. Many of you will know that in my day job, I am the CEO of a, an organization called Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries, a Vancouver-based organization which has grown a lot in the last few years, which, which many of you know. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with it most of the time. But our role is to equip churches to support mental health and well-being. And we do that in churches around the world. If you want to know more, Google us or send me an email. About a year ago, a man named Isaac Wardell, who's become a good friend of mine, reached out and said, does Sanctuary want to make an album, like a music album? My first response was no. I, I don't, I don't, why would we make a music album? I'm, I mean, I know I'm a brilliant singer, but... <laughs> but, um, but then I found out Isaac leads an amazing uh, ministry uh, uh, called the Portersgate Worship Project. And the Portersgate consists of musicians from all different Christian backgrounds who create Christian music that is so beautiful that it draws anyone who hears it into the music. And also it speaks about subjects that the church just doesn't often have words for. And he said, we want to make an album on mental health with Sanctuary Partner with us. Uh, so we did. We went on a journey with the Porter's Gate to create an album entitled Sanctuary Songs, songs about faith and mental health. And we hosted a writer's retreat on Keats Island. Then um, uh, that was last October. Then in February, we went to Nashville where they were recording it. And then um, amazingly, uh, the first time these songs were played, just uh, less than two months ago, I was in the Royal Albert Hall in London, England at the Alpha Leadership Conference where we saw 6,000 people singing these songs that I'd watched just create from ideas that Sanctuary had. Uh, it was a remarkable moment. And now we're releasing these songs throughout the summer with a full album in September. The reason I tell you all of this is there is one song, one song on that album called Christ is Lower Still, which we're actually releasing in a few weeks uh, as a single release. And you're going to be singing that song today. It's primarily written by a friend of mine called Matt Marr. Uh, Matt has written a number of Christian songs that you'll likely know, like Your Grace is Enough, Lord I Need You, Your Love Defends Me. And Matt was so inspired by a particular image, a picture, that I want to share with you as I close. So inspired that he wrote this beautiful song about the depths to which Christ was and is willing to go to meet us. This picture is of the work of an artist named Guido Galetti. Guido Galetti made a bronze statue of Christ entitled Christ of the Abyss. The statue is eight feet tall, made of bronze, and in this statue, Christ is not reaching his arms out to the world as we're used to seeing, but Christ is postured reaching upwards. And Guido took this beautiful statue uh, that any of us would be so proud of, we'd want everyone to see it. And he sank it 17 meters down to the bottom of the ocean, just off the coast of San Fruttuoso, Italy. In order to see this beautiful statue, you have to go down into the depths of the ocean, into the darkness. For too long, the images of Christ that we have seen require us to look up or to ascend the mountain. But Guido says, no, when you go into the darkest depths, it is Christ reaching up to you. He doesn't reach down to pull you up. He reaches up to support you and say, I'm already here. Because however low we go, Christ always goes lower still. Matt was so inspired by this picture, he said, I want to write a song for people in the depths, in whatever depths they're facing, to understand that Christ is found in the depths too. The journey to finding Christ in the depths may be more painful, it may be more difficult, but he's there. So when you're in the depths, you don't have to look up, you can look down. In a minute, uh, the band will be playing that song uh, for you to sing it. And I don't think, other than the Royal Albert Hall, I don't think any congregation in the world has ever sung it. So uh, you can look forward to that. But there's a line in this song that I just want to leave with you. Or, or a verse, it says this. Let the king descend, living word made flesh. Lift this heavy heart, 
to your throne, O God. In your wounds I find room for all of mine. Where from grace I fell, Christ was lower still. You see, you can't hide from God. You can run, but you can't hide. And because of this, God will even allow us to say no, because he knows that wherever the no takes us, his grace can still seek us out and find us wherever we end up. When it feels like you've fallen from grace, you may just be ready for Christ to meet you there. Today, Christ meets us wherever we are, and especially if if you're in the depths. If you're in the depths of depression or anxiety, Christ can meet you there. And he's not going to drag you up. He's going to say, I'm with you there. Whatever depths you're in, in the depths of despair, in the depths of discomfort, in the depths of any kind of ill health, just as Christ received Jonah in the belly of a fish to help him fulfill his calling, Christ meets each of us with a posture of support and grace abounding. We can never outrun the grace and mercy of God because Christ is always lower still. Let us pray. Our Lord and Saviour, our King, our friend, may you descend to the depths of our imaginations this morning. May you descend to the deepest and darkest parts of our hearts and minds. May you descend to the places where we run from you. And may you give us strength and courage to see you as you are. Our friend and brother holding us up. Offering us grace and mercy at each step. I thank you that you're not scared of the darkness. That you're not scared of our indifference and disobedience. For you always meet us where we are. And together we lift our burdens and our cares before you. With no pretense, we cast our cares on you, for you can uphold them. Thank you, King Jesus, for descending to the depths that you might reach up and offer us hope in the midst of despair again and again and again and again. And may we be a people that reflect this hope, this hope-filled posture that reminds each other that Christ is with us and especially when we're in the depths. Amen.